Let's jump in. A couple of weeks ago, we started this series uh, in a, a small book of the Bible in the New Testament called First Peter. And uh, if you weren't here or want to catch up, it's on our website or on our podcast. You can listen into that. And we started last week just with the introduction of this letter and got an understanding that these people that, that Peter's writing to, uh, these, these brand new Christians uh, under the Roman Empire in, in what's known as modern day Turkey, were people that were often marginalized economically, um, socially in various ways. And, and though they felt like exiles, Peter addresses them as God's elect, chosen people. So this contrast of, of what society was saying they were, but what God was saying they were as they came to know him through Jesus Christ. And it was a great kind of kickoff to that, this series as we jump into this letter. And if you're new here or wondering how we, we move around from series to series, we, we will do topics, but then we'll park ourselves in a, in a book of the New Testament or Old Testament and just track with it for a while and, uh, and not pick a topic, but let the scriptures pick the topic as we move forward. So that's what we're doing with First Peter. And so we're going to jump into this letter again and start reading from the first chapter. I'll read the first two verses again, and then we'll continue... Uh, into the next uh, eight or nine verses as we continue this morning. So follow along with me. If you've got your Bibles, First Peter chapter 1, you can follow along on the screen, all right? For Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you through, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Um, Man, what a great verse. This is like, we're kind of still in the intro of the letter, and Peter's super excited in this point. He's like, he explodes with excitement. And if you read through this in English even, I mean, this was written in Greek, like there's all kinds of commas and pauses and kind of like little thoughts in between. And have you ever been in that situation? You're so excited, you start to write or talk and you just ignore syntax and grammar altogether. And that, that's kind of like what Peter's doing. He ignores that. It's really a bad flow. And, and you have to kind of piece it together to, to understand what he's saying. But he can't help himself because he's excited 
uh, as he's talking or writing to these Christ followers in the first century, and he wants to encourage his readers to have this really solid hope. And he's trying to present to them the grounds of this solid hope because they are feeling ostracized and marginalized. And we already know from a couple of weeks ago, they're called exiles or strangers or foreigners. Um, That's how they feel. And Peter just, he wants to encourage them so much. And he explodes with excitement that this is this run-on sentence in these few verses. I was at a coffee shop a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking to the, to the manager, and she was telling me about some of the stuff she's been going through, and she's a, a single mom and two kids and manages this coffee shop, and, and I was listening to her, and she was telling me she was in this meeting with other uh, employees, and kind of like a district manager came in, and, and they, they, sh- they shared this, this illustration, and one of the three words just kind of popped out at her, and it was the words that said this, you got this. You got this. And so here's this manager, overwhelmed, um, just with like her life and, and, and the busyness and the stress and some of the things that are going on and some of the things that are going on in their kids' lives. And these three words just jump out at her. You got this. And I remember talking to her and listening to that and then ch- chatting about a few things. And before uh, I left, I said, hey, I, I, want, I affirm that with her again. I want you to know that you got this and, and, and we're praying for you. I'm praying for you. I asked her if I could pray on the spot. She said, maybe when you leave. So I said, no problem. <laughs> but um, uh, you ever pray in, in public places? Just keep your eyes open and pray, and nobody knows what's going on. It's all good. Um, so here's, here's Peter. Peter is like, he wants to tell these people, you got this. He understands what they're walking through. For these new Christians struggling every day as a marginalized group in society, one, because of their social status, but also now because of their faith, they're this new contrast to their society. They're struggling. And Peter ultimately wants to say, you got this. But what is Peter telling them? He begins to unpack for them what it means for them as Christians, these new Christ followers, how they came to faith and what that faith means and, and really kind of this big picture. And he begins to unpack it. And the word that we see a couple of times in this text is the word salvation. But he uses three other words to describe it. And these three other words or phrases he uses helps them really see the big picture of what God has done for them and in them and through them as they put their faith in Jesus Christ. As we we jump into verse 3, we we see Peter right away, um, he begins to say this. If you can go to the next slide. As Peter says, this in his great mercy he has given us, and here's his first phrase to help us and help them unpack salvation. He has given us new birth. So Peter's trying to help them understand that their faith in Christ has resulted literally or almost kind of like in this new existence. Not that they're, you know, uh, that they look different physically, but that they've entered this brand new existence, that their faith in Christ and, and this salvation given to them by God is like a new birth, this brand new life. That what God offers anyone who believes in Jesus is brand new life, is vibrancy and direction and future and a new family. In fact, Jesus um, was talking to someone named Nicodemus in the Gospels, and he says, unless someone is born again, um, they will never truly experience God's kingdom and God's family. So that word born again. Paul, when he writes to people in the first century, says that anyone who's in Jesus Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so here's Peter trying to help them understand what do they have in Jesus what, is, what does it mean to be saved, that word salvation? And he uses this phrase, 
this new birth, because he wanted to make them understand what they were going through, that what they were experiencing wasn't just this add-on to their worldview. Oh, let me add Jesus onto my life. Let me add Jesus onto my worldview. Let me add Jesus onto my X, Y, Z philosophy. This wasn't an expansion of another faith. It wasn't like some, some silver bullet for success in life. It wasn't like, here, do this and get out of this suffering. It was new birth. It was new life. And, and this is part of what it means to experience salvation. But he uses another word as, as he continues. And he says that they've been given us this new birth into this. And here's this phrase. I love this phrase. Can we say this phrase out loud? Living hope. That was horrible. Can we just say this one more time out loud? Living hope. What an amazing two words to help these people and us understand what it means when someone puts their faith in Christ and begins to experience the life of God in their life. Living hope. Have you ever seen some of those tragic scenes from like a total mess or a total wreck, like an earthquake or a war-torn place where someone is rescued? You know, there's, there's just destruction all around, but then often there's, there, you, you see these, these, these rare rescue stories where someone is rescued and immediately it brings hope. Or for me, it's when you know, maybe a, a region in the world has been toppled and it's just so tragic to watch. But then someone realizes that, you know, in just one part of this tragedy, here's this pregnant woman who in the middle of all this mess gives birth to a child. And this child is born in the middle of the rubble where, where there's death and destruction, where people from the village are, are, are dead. This birth gives hope. Somehow it's like, Life is possible. Newness is possible. The next step of rebuilding is possible. It's messy. It's complicated. It doesn't always look perfect. But when that happens, hope comes. And imagine these people that Peter's writing to who they feel like exiles. Hope is dying. Hope is depleting physically and economically. And maybe a job or safety would bring them a little bit of hope, really temporarily. Here's some material hope. Hope. Here's some physical hope for safety, temporary. But then Peter says, do you realize what you have in Jesus? You have living hope. You have this living hope, this genuine hope that's not temporary, but that is ongoing and that moves right into eternity. And it leads to this next metaphor that Peter uses twice to describe what this salvation is. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting word for him to use in terms of faith, but it's this word inheritance, that they are in a sense, birthed into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that this inheritance is kept for them in heaven for them. Man, this is this future promise that God gives those who put their faith in Jesus that their future is secure. Have you ever met someone who, who um, is talking about their family and maybe like an aunt that, uh, that the, everyone's hoping to be in the will? Have you, have you ever talked to families like that? And so someone like, you know the person who visits the aunt a lot and gets on their good side and hangs out with them for coffee, and then you say, for sure that person's in the will, right? And so that kind of sense of confirmation or security is, is, is very hopeful. But it kind of becomes a joke, right? But that line there, oh, they're in the will, or I'm in the will, or if someone actually tells you, you're in the will, you're getting 25% of everything, and you hope that they own more than $1,000, right? But, but, here, but that's an amazing confirmation that something will be coming to you, and it's in writing at the notary. 
that your name is written in the will as part of the inheritance is coming for you or to you. Well, here's the deal with what salvation is, that God's salvation isn't only new birth and a living hope, but it's a fixed hope. It's a fixed hope that something is coming to you. That God's salvation is not just for now, but there's a promise into eternity for the restoration of his kingdom and all things. Because salvation is God's promise to restore all things. When we read in Revelation that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and all things will be restored, when you become a Christ follower, you become part of that restoration. You become part of that promise. You become part of that inheritance that is for you. You become a sign for it, but you also promised it. That's the beauty of what it means to be in Christ today and into the future. And when Peter says, it's your inheritance, it means this is yours. Your name is in the, in, in the will, in the kingdom will, in God's will. Your name is there. Now imagine this, these marginalized Christ followers who they have no security anywhere, and any maybe little job they get, they, might, they don't, don't even know if it's going to last another day or two. And they have little security for them. And maybe some of the promises given to them by society or family or uh, employers or whatever fall through. And most of their hopes have a shelf life. It's like, yeah, I have hope, but I know there's a shelf life to it. And we've, you've, maybe you've been in situations like that or you've met people in situations like that, that when they, something hopeful comes to them, they've been so discouraged that they say, this is great, but I know it's not going to last long. This is great, but trust me, in my life, this only lasts a month or two. These people that are reading this letter feel like that. But Peter says, in Christ, your name's in the will. There's an inheritance for you. And he says that could never perish. It doesn't have a shelf life. It's not going to be taken away from you. God's promised future is inevitable, and it cannot not happen. And Peter reminds them that this is for you. In fact, he goes back and says, even the prophets long to see this day when God would send his son and people would embrace his son. They longed to see it. They talked about it. They, they, they predicted it. They didn't see it themselves, but they longed to see it. And he says something extraordinary. He says, not even the angels know everything that's going on with how God's grace works with you. There's this great verse in Ephesians 3 that talks about God's manifold wisdom kind of being like projected to the heavens. And I always kind of have this image like, like angels peeking in and saying, oh, that's what the gospel means. Oh, that's what salvation was all. Oh my God, that's amazing. God, you, you set this up? This is... And they start to, to see God's wisdom unfold. And there's this beauty and hope in what God is doing and unfolding as he sent Jesus Christ to the world. And, and as Peter brings this together, he says, I want you to understand what you have in Jesus. When he calls them God's elect... And that God purposed this for you and the Holy Spirit worked in you and Jesus died on your behalf to make this happen. Then he unpacks it and says, this is new birth. This is living hope. This is inheritance. So he gives them the what, but here he gives them the how as well. How does this happen? And the first thing he says, if we go back to verse three, he says that it's in God's great mercy that he has given us. If you go, just go to the next slide after. He is in his great mercy. He has given us New birth. I love that. Because this means that when God gives you something, it's not because of merit or reward. It's not like, I did this, so God's going to give me this. I've been super good, so God's going to reward me with this. My, my son is, is in grade 11 preparing for college, and last year 
you know, grade 10's a, diff- a harder year, and uh, there's math and other stuff. And so there's questions about like, okay, so if I, I got to do this math or this math to do what I want to do, or I should pass math or whatever, right? Now, wouldn't it be amazing if a math teacher said, because of the principal's great mercy, I'm going to give, like, give you an 85. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because of the principal's great mercy, I'm giving you new birth into mathematics. I'm, I'm giving you an 85 to help you. Now, math does not work like that, right? But mercy does, right? Math doesn't work like that, but mercy does. You can't really, math is a really like, you do it, you get it right, or you get it wrong, you pass or you fail. But mercy doesn't work like that. See, and salvation starts as a gift. That in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth. There's nothing we could have done or these readers could have done to merit that or gain that or get that as a reward. It was God's great gift to them and to us. And I love it because here's God's attitude, God's heart that provides this gift, but then his action solidifies it. And as we continue in the verse, we can see that he's given us new birth into a living hope. And then here's this word, through the resurrection of Jesus. God's attitude is, I'm giving this to you out of my mercy. But his action is, I've completed this. I've accomplished this on the cross in Jesus Christ. He died, was in the grave, but he rose again. And so this living hope is promised because the resurrection happened. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave. And if it happened in Jesus, it's available for us. So how does someone receive salvation? First, it's a gift. Second, it's something God accomplished through Jesus on the cross. And when he rose from the grave, he secured salvation. In fact, Paul said, if the resurrection didn't happen, my faith is futile. Paul, as he's writing to first Christians, I mean, he could have fudged it a bit and kind of like maybe tried to make them feel better and say, you know, if we ever discover this. or He's like, he's just straight out. Hey, if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is futile. But we're promised, we're given this gift of salvation We're given this through God's great mercy. God accomplished it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then here's the next how part. It's our response. And this inheritance is kept for you in heaven, who through faith, and just stick to that phrase for a second, who through faith, that's that's not God's part, that's our part. I mean, God has faith in us. He loves us. He believes in us. He believes great things for us. But our response to God's gift our, our response to what he did on the cross through Jesus Christ, our, our, the, the one caveat of someone um, you know, receiving this new birth, this, this amazing gift, um, this inheritance, this living hope, it's this, this peace here. God has done all this for us, and then through faith, we respond to him. So our faith unlocks God's gift. Our faith unlocks God's mercy. If you're here today and you're following Christ, you have, you've, you've made a choice in faith to trust Jesus. And if you've been tracking with, with us for a while and you're saying, I long to have this, this thing that Peter just described, this new birth, this living hope, this inheritance, and oh wow, it's God's gift for me. I don't have to really, I, I can't merit it. I can't do nothing to get it as a reward. He's accomplished under the cross. But then here's this response, in faith. And uh, John tells us in 1 John that to all who believed him, who all who received him believed in his name, they're given the right to become children of God, that we respond 
to this amazing message of the gospel in faith. Verse 8 to 9 tells us a little bit about what faith looks like. And, and look, look what Peter tells him. He says, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus. Peter's seen Jesus. He was around when Jesus was around, but they weren't. And he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. That's faith. Even though you do not, believe, you do not see him now, you believe in him. That's faith. And you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So our response in faith is our part to receiving what God has for us. And, and, and there's this receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Salvation is present and salvation is future. We can have this new birth and this living hope, but we also have an inheritance, God's promise that salvation will be full and, and fulfilled, where all things will be restored. And we receive that through faith. And here's this thing, this little caveat here for us, because it's important. We read this amazing description. I don't know about you, but I read this run-on sentence from Peter, and I can get really excited. Man, it's amazing. New birth, living hope, inheritance. My name's in the will. God, this is from your mercy. You've given this as a gift. Uh, You've sent Jesus. He's resurrected from the dead. Amazing. I don't have to do anything. Like I can't really merit this, so there's nothing, you know, my goodness or badness or all this stuff. I I need to trust you and believe in you. I want to do that, and that's so good. And that when I read that, I tend to think like, okay, I'm going to stop right there. And then I start thinking, man, but these people reading this letter for the first time, they were going through some hard times. They were marginalized. They felt like exiles, strangers, foreigners. And, and now, as they put their faith in Christ, all of a sudden, now they're singled out. Not only as the marginalized or economically marginalized, now like they're the people who believe in this, in this King Jesus. So now they're even more marginalized compared to the rest of the culture. And because my tendency and our tendency is, great, let me take the new birth, living hope, inheritance. And sometimes people will preach to you and say, when you put your faith in Jesus, all you got to just do is pray and have faith and everything's going to go perfect. And then, and then Peter writes, Peter writes this, this in verse 6. Look what he says in verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice. Now if we stop there, that's where most of us are. That's awesome. In all this you greatly rejoice. I'm having a party right now in my brain just with this, right? But he says... Though for now, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. This, this, what God has done for them is, was presently true in the moment for them. And there, it's cause to rejoice. But they were still in the meantime, the, the for now, for a little while, may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And, and as, as, we, as, we pass, as we walk through this book of First Peter, I think one of the, the questions that we beg to ask when we read it is, how do we live today? How do we live in the now? You know that now, the though now for a little while? That's kind of the in-between when, when you know, Jesus comes and the climax of God's story and people come to faith in him, but there's the full restoration over here. How do we live in the now, in the for a while, for the little while? Is it all going to be like fully restored or is it going to be a roller coaster? Is every prayer for a fix or a solution or a healing or success, is it all going to be answered? Is it going to be just like, like up and to the right? Is that going to be our trajectory? And yet Peter just honestly bears his heart with these, with these first Christians. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. 
It's, it's interesting because the wake of their salvation, the wake, like, you know, like when there's a boat on the water, there's a wake of, of, um, of waves. The wake of salvation is definitely cause to rejoice. And there's joy that comes from the inside that we could never achieve on our own. But here's this piece that Peter is just honest with them. And he's, he's, he's being empathetic with them. He says, for now, you've suffered griefs. All kinds. All kinds of trials. There's a paradox there. There's joy and there's suffering. At the same time, there's salvation and there's suffering. And some of their suffering was their existing context. They lived in the Roman Empire. Maybe many of them were from a lower class and it was, they were marginalized. Then they become Christians. Then they become Christians. And it's not just their existing context that's cause for suffering. It's their increasing contrast that's cause for suffering. Their context already gave them suffering. But their faith in Jesus, in this person who died and rose from the dead, now is this increasing contrast with them and their culture. Because Jesus becomes Lord of their life and they start to follow him and listen to him and respond to him and live differently. And so these all kinds of trials, I don't, I don't know what it means. You can fill in the blanks what all kinds of trials means, but to me it means all kinds of trials. It means not just one, not just two, not just the ones we think we want and the ones we don't want, all kinds of trials. Just a variety of trials that they were facing. It made it maybe harder for them to find work at the time. Maybe the culture was hostile towards them. Maybe they became political outcasts because they didn't bow down to Rome and said, Rome, we do whatever you want. Rome, we, you know, we're just going to live for your, your glory. And they started to follow Jesus, and that was a contrast. Maybe they stood out in such a pagan religious culture, all these different cults and religious groups and, and, and different ideas and worldviews. Now they stand out like a sore thumb because they're following the dead man raised from the grave, Jesus. And they are committed to him. Though they don't see him, they love him. Though they don't see him now, they believe in him. And they begin to stand out in that culture. And I think that's part of the all kinds of trials that they're facing. I said last week, and, and we're going to get into this into the letter later, because Peter helps us to. It's like, what does it mean for, for suffering for us? We don't necessarily suffer like that. But we need to discern how Sometimes the wake of our own salvation causes ripples in our life. But there is purpose, right? Peter says, as he moves on, he says, this suffering refines you. It refines you. If you go to the next slide, it refines you. They're refined because it's proved, it proves the, genuine, the genuineness of their faith. As they go through this hard time, as, as they hit these trials of all kinds, as they're, as they're being ostracized at times, it proves the genuineness of their faith. And they demonstrate, it demonstrates how real Jesus was to them. They don't see him, but they love him. They don't see him, but they believe in him. And it just it refines who they are, and it refines their faith, and it just kind of it pushes away all the extra. And their faith comes to the surface, this genuine faith in Jesus. But it also proves the genuineness of their joy, right? In this you greatly rejoice. And then Peter says, even though you don't see him, you love him and believe him, and you're going to receive the end result of your faith with joy, inexpressible joy. So this new belief gives them joy, but culture is hostile to them. 
this, this, this same belief fills them with an inexpressible and glorious joy right in the middle of their suffering. It shouldn't make sense, right? It shouldn't make sense that they can be joyful in the middle of suffering. But they can, and they are. Something, is beautiful, something beautiful is happening, and that's the unique power of Jesus. That's the unique power of Jesus. Because let's just be honest here. I feel for them. We don't all feel that way in our society. But the grief and suffering and trials, they're still present in these people's lives. God didn't just deliver them from all of them, but they still had cause to rejoice and to be joyful because of what they had in Jesus. And I think it just leads me to, to end this way. This just it shows me this, this, the uniqueness of, of Christian faith. The uniqueness of Christian faith. This, this faith in Jesus who died and rose from the grave. This faith that, that wells up in, in joy, even in the middle of difficulty, shows me how unique it is to believe in Jesus. How unique it is to put your trust in Christ. How unique it is this faith we call Christian or this faith defined by Jesus or this faith that's been lived through the centuries, especially since the resurrection of Jesus. So I want you to think about how unique this is. These first century people, right, lived in a pagan world. Pagan meant they just had a plethora of gods, a plethora of worldviews, a plethora of cults. Is what we might call pre-Christian. We all live in like the wake of a Christian society, you know? 60 years ago in Canada, there was, you know, churches in every town. There was the wake of Europeans moving here and building some churches and there was people going to those churches and, and, and maybe it felt like we were kind of like, hey, we lived in this kind of Christian, you know, influenced place. But pre, the pre-Christian world... The pre-idea of this is what these first readers were feeling. And there was no sense of what that was like. And, and, and just don't, don't get me wrong here. I don't want to go back to the 1950s or the 40s or the 30s or the 20s or the 1800s because there was some stuff even in there, what it meant to be a Christian that we can learn from and we can also learn not to do because what it means to live out our faith in our society today. But think about us. They were in a pre-Christian world. We are slowly entering a post-Christian world. And so, you know, 25% of Canadians are, slow, are increasingly calling themselves, well, nothing. There's no religious affiliation. And secularized society is, is growing. And so in a similar way, we live in a pluralistic world. Maybe back then it was a whole bunch of cults and different religions and, and pagan, like a pagan plethora of gods. And for us, it's just a variety of beliefs variety of worldviews, variety of ideas about success, what we, what we put our stake in the ground for. Maybe back then they, you know, they, they called it like uh, Athena, the goddess of whatever, but today we call it consumerism, the god of money. Whatever. There was its beliefs, it's religious, and today we live in a post-Christian world. And here's the beauty. The gospel was unique then, and the gospel is unique now. The gospel penetrated that culture then, and the gospel penetrates that culture now. And as we come, I was thinking about this, a few, a few guys from Westside a couple of years ago, well, a couple of times, we went to Frank. Frank's here, Frank Malachi. He, has a, he had a restaurant, and we had breakfast there on a Saturday morning, a few guys. Now, if you go to a breakfast place like Shakora or something else, like it's standard menu, you know, it's good, but you know what you're going to get, right? So we went to Frank's restaurant, and um, we're sitting there. And it's like, what do you want? And, and Frank's not just a cook. Frank's a chef, right? So there's a difference between a, a cook 
and a chef. You know what I mean? Like I can boil pasta, but I'm, I'm not even a cook actually, but, but there's a difference between a cook and, and a chef. And, and so when we got there and, and you know, what do you want and this and that, and the way he prepared the eggs and, uh, some of the, the vegetables and some of the fruit and, and uh, the meat and different things and some really awesome desserts. I mean, you just looked at the table. You're like, it's like an artist put this together. It's amazing. It was unique. It, was, it, it had intention and, and specialty to it. And, and it makes me think, like we live in a world with a buffet of ideas, a buffet of spiritual ideas, a buffet of religious ideas, a buffet of ideas and how to live your life. But when you go to a buffet, everything's pretty blah, right? I mean, some people love it because they can fill their dish 17 times. But you never really walk by and say, oh my gosh, this was amazing, right? You never come back to your seat and say, man, this is cool. Now imagine we're all at a buffet and, uh, and, I, and you co- I come back and I sit at the table and, uh, and then on my dish, I have this perfectly cooked piece of filet mignon with like mushrooms on top nicely glazed just a beautiful artistic dish and you guys are looking at that and like are we at the same restaurant like how did you dave how did you get this and i'm like you didn't catch that dish that was like just number seven along the line i saw it and it's amazing and they're like how is that here that's too unique to be here. That's too beautiful to be here. That's too good to be true, to be in this line of food. But as I bring it to the table, and if you're a vegetarian, there's an amazing portobello mushroom just kind of glazed over. So, and you're looking and you're like, that is so good. That's so unique. How is that at this buffet? Everything else is just blah. And that's, that's the gospel in a pre-Christian and a post-Christian world. There's a buffet of ideas. There's a buffet of religious uh, ideas and bents and, and faiths. There's, a, there's, a, there's just a buffet of ways to live your life. And then the gospel cuts through and says, this, wow, this is so good. This is so beautiful. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, we have this new birth, this living hope, this inheritance with your name on it because it's come through, G- through God's great mercy. He's given it to you, accomplished it in the resurrection and you just need to respond to it in faith. This is so beautiful and it's just in the middle of this blah offer. And so two things as we, we wrap this up. One is the gospel breaks through our pluralistic society. It breaks through everything society religion, worldviews have to offer. It points us to a genuine hope. In fact, one author says, if our response to God is not, that's too good to be true, then the God of the cross had not come into full view in our imagination yet. It's kind of like the, the, the feeling you know, at the buffet. If you don't catch it and say, oh, this is too good to be true to be in this lineup, then you missed it. You missed how beautiful it is. So the gospel breaks through our pluralistic culture and the gospel, secondly, carries us through a hostile culture. As we grow, as we continue to move forward in a a secularized world, in a pluralistic world, the gospel will sometimes um, feel like it's, it's living in a hostile place. And let me tell you, whether you're suffering because of culture or you're suffering because your life and faith is a contrast to that culture, the promise is always the same. I will be with you. God says, I will be with you. He carries you through. He carries you through the hostility that you might feel in culture. And so as we, as we close right now, I just, there are some of us here that just need to pause and say, 
man, if I had lacked the imagination of how beautiful the gospel is, and just to revel in that for a moment this morning as we worship, and if that's all you need to do today, be reminded of how amazing salvation is and how great it is and how beautiful and unique it is, then revel in it for the next few minutes as we worship. But maybe some of you have been tracking with us for a while, coming here and there, and, and there's this, just this little rub against, against what it means. You're like saying, I kind of like the buffet of ideas, but I really, lo- I really lo- want the uniqueness of faith, this beautiful thing that God offers. And then all you need to do is respond. It's through faith. God's done so much. He's so much. He's given you this. He's done it in the resurrection. He says, respond in faith. So if that's you this morning, I'm going to invite you to say, I trust Jesus Christ as Lord. I long to trust him and follow him. I long for this new birth. I long for this living hope. I long for this inheritance that God has given to me in his mercy. I get it. I see it. I see how, how amazing it is, even though we see it just in our, in our limits, in our, in our finite way of seeing it. But I see it and I long for it. And, and the, the scripture says, and Jesus says, respond in faith. Through faith. Through faith you will discover this. Through faith you will know Jesus. Through faith you will know this life. Let's all stand as we, we pray for a moment and the team leads us in, a, in a, just a short time of worship. So if that's you today, I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. I just, I long for you just to say that, to, to respond even in this moment. Say, Jesus, I want to put my faith in you. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I, I repent of like, even entertaining the buffet of all the other ideas that just fall dry. They all have a, sh- their, their hope all has a shelf life, but your hope is long-term. I want to put my trust in you. So if that's you today, would you pray with me? And then we're going to continue in worship. Heavenly Father, I recognize your great mercy and your gift that you want to offer me new birth, living hope, inheritance, salvation. I see it. And I long for it. And I recognize that it's a gift from you. And I recognize that it's been, it's possible and available to me because of your son, Jesus. Just pray these words with me as I pray, if that's your heart. God, I, I trust in what you've done in the cross and resurrection of Christ. Right now, I respond in faith. Though I don't see Jesus, I put my faith in Him. I believe in Him. And I choose to move towards loving Him and calling Him Lord. I say yes to that offer, God. I say yes right in this moment to that offer. I long to follow your Son, Christ, and experience the new birth and living hope and future inheritance that you have for me. I say yes to it in Jesus' name.